You're listening to Creative Confidential with Brian Tuck. Brian is an attorney who represents startups, nonprofits, arts organizations, and people who work in the creative industries. As an arts entrepreneur, Brian is the founder and CEO of Performing Arts Live, a Pennsylvania nonprofit corporation dedicated to creating and supporting live performance opportunities for jazz and electronic artists. Its flagship program is the Allentown Jazz Fest. Brian is a TEDx speaker, a Grammy voter, and jazz musician. Creative Confidential begins now. The word virtuoso gets thrown around quite a bit, but today's guest is exactly that. Lawrence Hobgood is a classically trained pianist who started playing jazz in his teen years. A chance meeting with vocalist Kurt Elling led to a 20-year stint as Elling's musical director, during which time Lawrence collected multiple Grammy nominations, culminating with a Grammy Award win in 2010. Now leading his own ensemble, Lawrence is forging his own path. Lawrence, thanks for joining us today. Uh, thank you, Brian. It's great to be on. So we're uh, we're joined together today by the magic of uh, Skype, and uh, you're you're up in uh, up in New York State a little bit. Um, we're, we're very fortunate you're you're coming down for the Allentown Jazz Festival uh, this year. We're uh, we're all looking forward to uh, to your solo performance. I'm I'm looking forward to it as well. Uh, we are excited about um, this trio, and we're playing great, and uh, it'll be fun. So, um, for those of you, you know, we're in a in a region where we're kind of breaking this concept in a little bit. Uh, it's mainly kind of a, a blues town, a rock and roll town, I guess, is is how I would really describe uh, the region. Mm-hmm. And, and we're in the in the second year of the jazz festival, and and you know, part of what we want to do is, you know, explore some of your you know professional, you know, pathway, how you got to where you are, and and you know what you what you have to do to maintain that, because I always think that that's, you know. It's a it's quite a different story with each artist that we come in contact with, whether they're painters or um, you know film directors or, or, or musicians. And you know you've had such um, you know you you've accomplished so many things, whether it's with Kurt Elling or as a solo artist or with the Grammy win, you know in 2010 that, you know, really wanted to kind of dig into some of that for a little sure. bit, if, uh, if we could. So, um, you know, do we want to be predictable and kind of start at the beginning, um, you know, early influences, you know, when you first, you know, when did you first start studying piano? Well, I come from uh, an arts family, very blessed in that respect. Uh, so I started actually playing before I had even taken lessons, and I started lessons in the first grade, um, and just had nothing but support and encouragement, lots of it actually, more than sometimes I wanted, <laughs> um, at home, and studied classically for many years. Always showed a strong improvisational 
tendency. Uh, sometimes that used to drive my classical piano teachers a little bit nuts, actually. Uh, so my family moved from Dallas, Texas to Illinois in 1975. My dad switched uh, jobs. He was the director of theater at SMU in Dallas for a little over a decade. And then he accepted that same position at University of Illinois in Urbana-Champaign. And it was when we moved to Urbana that I sort of, you know, I mean, when you move away from a place, you obviously curtail and quit your lessons with your teacher there. Mm -hmm. And uh, when we got to Illinois, I think my my dad especially was kind of just watching to see what I was going to do. And I, age 15, adjusting to a new place, new friends, kind of a tough time of life to be going through that. Uh, so I wasn't really paying much attention to the piano. And quietly, my dad had this strong conviction that that was what I was supposed to do, whether I knew it or liked it or not. <laughs> um, and so eventually sort of said to himself, I wonder, I wonder if this kid is really more of a, a jazz has more of a jazz destiny than a classical destiny. And so that's when I started studying jazz with a, a young professor on the faculty uh, at that time. And it's been jazz ever since then. Uh, that's all I've ever really uh, put my focus on. Was that a style of music that that was on in the house when you were growing up? You know, or was that, a, was that a, a different, you know, how big of a departure from what you were listening to at that time was it to switch to to studying jazz uh not not really uh a, a departure my so my parents had a very eclectic musical palette and that was a conscious thing they thought that was important um they used to play uh bill evans um dave brubeck who i had the honor later of getting to know which was a little surreal having grown up listening to him in my living room um of my folks house uh and one of the funny stories uh, well funny a little bit um when i was 11 my dad insisted on taking me to a duke ellington uh sacred concert uh so i got to hear duke and actually stood online afterward and got his autograph and it, it's kind of funny because i I'm honestly able to say that there's a very good chance that the greatest jazz concert I'll ever hear was the first jazz concert I ever heard. Um, uh, it was, I, I still remember it. It was at this huge church and it was the expanded big band with a small gospel choir, four gospel soloists in front. They'd already been on tour. So they were, I'm sure, I mean, I'm sure my memory of it is it probably was as amazing as I remember it to be. It was very inspiring. Mm hmm uh, evening. So anyway, the move to jazz was, um, was very, very natural, very natural thing. Well, it's fun. I think a lot of, um, a lot of the guests on the show and, you know, friends or acquaintances of mine that are also musicians, you know, everybody tends to have a story like that. Like in, in my case, um, really even before I, I think I had picked up drums at age 11 and, when I was 15, uh, the Buddy Rich Band was was playing at the University of Pennsylvania campus, and my, mm -hmm. and my mom took me to see that. Now, she knew who he was, but I, you know, at that age really didn't know, you know, even what was what. So, um, 
you know, to see that was towards the end of, I think that was 1986. Um, but to be able to see that level of performance up close mm-hmm. at an early age, I, I can, I can relate to that statement. I'm, I'm not sure if I went, you know, if you go back in time as an adult, knowing what you know now and see the same thing, you may have a different opinion a little bit, but, uh, maybe not by much in the case of, of Duke Ellington. I don't think. No, not by much. I, I, if only, if only I could magically transport myself and hear that same evening with the ears I have now, uh, uh, and all of their, you know, informed by experience, uh, uh, listening power. But, but nonetheless, it was, I just remember it being a magical evening and this is going to sound hokey, but when, when I got Duke's autograph, like I said, I stood in line and here I was this little white kid in a, in a, in a suit, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, but, but uh, I remember I looked up at him and I said something very much like, Mr. Ellington, I'm a piano player. And when I grow up, I'm going to be a jazz piano player just like you. I swear to God, I said some <laughs> some version of yeah. that cliche. And I'll never forget that he looked down at me and he kind of, you know, he had that that chortle, that laugh that you'd hear so often on his on the live recordings. Uh, where he would just kind of go rah, 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 like that, you know, and right. he looked down at me and he laughed like that. And then he signed my uh, Duke Ellington's greatest hits record that I had brought along at my father's suggestion. So it was uh, very, very fun, very fun moment. That's a great story. And, and, you know, I would think from no matter how many times, you know, kind of putting yourself in, in Duke Ellington's shoes in that story, no matter how many times something like that happens, I think it's it must be gratifying you know the hunt you know as gratifying the hundredth time it happens as as maybe as the first um it has not happened to me like that but i can i can only imagine so um so you know you're in chicago you Mm -hmm. you start studying jazz and how does that evolve as you go through high school and and undergrad uh, well, okay. I, I mean, I, Chicago came a little bit later, not to correct you, but oh, I was sorry. down in Urbana, which is a very, very different environment. It's in the middle of the prairie, you know. Um, and uh, uh, the honest answer is that during the three years of high school, I was like an unwilling sponge. And what I mean by that is, you know, it's a socially difficult time of life. And I was getting all this information from my teacher, which spoke to my uh, my uh, my abilities, my talent or whatever you want to say. I, I should just qualify that by saying that I never I never feel like artists should dance around you know, being honest about having gifts or talent, because to me, these are things that were not earned. They're blessings that are bestowed. Uh, what you do with them is a whole different subject, but there, there, there should not be uh, pride issues with regard to talent, because pride, to the extent that it's uh, valid, should only apply to things that you've actually worked on and earned. So, you know, <laughs> that long caveat said, I was getting all this information that spoke to 
the schematic, if you will, of what my natural gift is, which is understanding the structural and theoretical system that underlies music. Um, and it took me years to, uh, to, to actually get to the point where I realized that I sort of understood that compositional nuts and bolts aspect of music in a natural way that, n that not everybody did. And as I subsequently figured out that hardly anybody uh, has that quite that gift the people that have that gift are people who become composers and orchestrators and arrangers. Um, and then how, how original their thinking is, is of course a case by case thing. Point is I didn't really work that hard. That's what I'm trying to dance around saying. I, I, and yet I was having a lesson every week and I was getting all this information and it was kind of building up. And so once I got into college, I actually started studying classically again. In fact, that was some of the most important study that I ever did. Um, and I sort of got back to working very hard a lot of that time. Where, um, where was college? And that was University of Illinois. Mm -hmm. And I was studying with a, a pianist uh, who's still uh, very active named Ian Hobson, uh, who's a British guy uh, who is known for his... Well, he's known for a lot of things. The repertoire that this guy keeps in memory is sort of unfathomable. Uh, what he's what he's able to do without having to look at music. This is all in the classical realm. Mm -hmm. um, but the most salient thing is that Ian taught me a technical system, which I adapted to working in jazz. Uh, the obvious difference being that when you're practicing jazz. You're working on your ability to improvise as opposed to play from a notated score of some kind. Um, but technically, in terms of the way that the hands move uh, and the way the mechanism, the physical mechanism works, um, there is very little difference to me between the two things. It's all about physical efficiency, uh, relaxed control, absence of tension, and... Fortunately for me, when I started lessons with him, to put it this way, I didn't have any, I'd ha I basically had had really good training. So I didn't have any atro atrociously bad habits to get rid of. Um, I, I just, uh, uh, I just had to learn the specifics of his system. And uh, that was, it was very deep work. It has to do with very slow practice and incorporating, letting muscle memory do its work. Uh, and without that, uh, there's no way that I would have been able to uh, sort of, you know, attain the, the technical level that, that it allowed me to uh, get to. So th that was really crucial for me. And then after, um, so, you know, applying that, new classical training you're you're getting you know more polished you know technically um obviously and you know what is what happens once you get out of undergrad where do you go what was the first you know i, I hate to say what was your big break but you know there's a turning point in everyone's you know cr creative arc where you know things turn from theoretical to practical and by that i mean you may want to be um, you know, you may want to be a, a performer or a solo artist or a band leader, but there comes a point in your career where it happens and you have to be ready for it to happen. What, what time was that for you? 
Well, I would I would list a couple of things. While I was still in Champaign-Urbana, there was a very healthy jazz scene down there. And this is a sort of in a different time than we have now. One of the aspects of that was that there was a lot of uh, extracurricular, um, in other words, non-registered student involvement that was allowed to go on. Uh, so I stayed in Urbana for five or six years after I was done with school and just I led a trio I had gigs um, I was very close to my family that was a big part of it uh, something in me knew that as life proceeded onward I wasn't always going to have um, this wonderfully healthy of a time to be with my family um, and uh, I just I wanted to have that as something to look back on. So I delayed leaving the little college town longer than most people probably would have. Uh, while I was still there, there was a night at our little local jazz club. I mean, there were many, many nights, but there was this one night where I had put together, I guess you'd say my first sextet and realizing that I had three horns on on just a couple of the tunes that we were playing, I said, well, you know, I should do a little arrangement so these guys aren't just blowing solos all night, but that they have some some sort of parts to play uh, in a more uh, conventional ensemble sense. And I remember this one, there's an early tune of mine called The Eyes Have It, spelled E-Y-E-S. And at the end of performing that tune, I had this odd experience. I don't know if you've ever had it. I've had it a few times. And it's kind of hard to this, make this sound credible. But as the audience was applauding and, frankly, sort of freaking out, everything went into slow motion. I remember looking around and I saw people's hands clapping, and it was literally like in a film where you're looking at slow motion. Uh, uh, it, it just was this bizarre moment. Um, and that was kind of, for me, the first time that I, coming out of that, I just did have that internal boost of confidence in, in uh, hopefully in a kind of a Zen way, not, not so much ego, but just mm -hmm. an inner voice saying, Hey, you've got something to say and you're going to be given the means to say it. Um, so that was a big thing. And then I would also say, uh, a couple years after I moved to Chicago, I got asked to join the Monday night regular band at the Green Mill Jazz Club, which was led by the saxophonist Ed Peterson. And to this day, that book, which was about three inches thick, was the most challenging material that I've ever played, especially in context, because let's say you're in a band that plays every week and you play almost impossibly difficult material and you've got a lot of it. You would say to yourself, well, at least I can say there are these seven, eight, nine charts that are particularly difficult and they're really, really hard, but at least I get to play them every week. Uh, uh, so I get another chance at it next week and that get, allows it to be better. But that's not what happened on that gig. Not only were the conditions, as I've described, incredibly difficult material, but the book was so thick 
And Ed really considered it to be sort of a lab band. And so I'd sight read an eight-page long chart in odd meter with these incredible chord changes, just very bizarre harmonies and stuff like that. And then I might not see that chart again for another six months or a year even. Right. So every single week, it was like this this uh, 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 incredible uh, obstacle course of extremely challenging stuff. And Rob Amster, the uh, initial bass player, uh, who sadly passed away a few years ago now, but uh, was the bass player for the first 12 or 13 years uh, in the Kurt Elling phenomenon, if you want to call it that. Mm-hmm. Um, he was in that band as well. And we talked about it many times afterward. Uh, Ed moved to n- New Orleans where he still teaches. And so that band, after existing for a number of years, finally fell apart. Uh, but Rob and I would talk about how being in that situation raised the bar for us so incredibly in terms of just intellectually what we were prepared to deal with in terms of musical complexity and harmonic challenge and all that, that without having had that experience, I played in that band for almost four years. uh, And that's also where I met Kurt Elling. So um, that ended up having a lot of tributary effects too. That was a major uh, development for me uh, was was that playing with that band. Well, it's uh, there's a lot of things that are weaved into what what you just said, but you know the one thing that jumps out at me is that um, you know playing in an ensemble like that that there's always uh, a little bit of an element of danger, not physical, of course, but of having to sight read something that's very dense, where the band's kind of on the edge of you know no matter how good the players are, you know, of, of pulling the chart off, but there's, there is always that risk that there's going to be a train wreck somewhere. Oh yeah. <laughs> somewhere in there. But that, uh, that feeling I think with, with good jazz players is something you seek out, you know, it's kind of, a, a not a, addi- I don't, addicting isn't the right word necessarily, but, um, there, there is a certain, uh, adventure, in that feeling that that you seek out if you can if you can find a group that's like that where uh you don't always know what's going to happen that's you know that's a good thing absolutely and i mean for one thing what comes to mind because i've heard it i haven't had a chance to read herbie's book yet i want to very much i just haven't gotten to it but apparently it's brought about a resurgence of a famous story we've all heard about miles having very strong opinions about there being no such thing as a mistake um it's a question of making whatever you play uh to play it with such commitment that even if you do something that would technically be considered wrong by some people you use your creative abilities to just turn it into something that's right you know um uh so that there's what it really ends up being about is more that there just is nothing apologetic in your playing, uh, uh, nothing tentative. And I, the, so what you were just saying, the analogy to me is always one of everybody knows about the cliche of painting yourself into a corner. Um, but if you're going to paint yourself into a corner and you've got a paintbrush in your hand, then that means you also get to paint a trap door that allows you to escape the corner. <laughs> That's a good way to look at it. I never, uh, I never thought of it that way. Yeah, yeah. So, because over the years, I, I have to say, if I have a favorite, um, I guess compliments the word, but if I have a favorite thing that people 
say to me, it's, it, it'll be some version of saying, man, I hear you. I hear you play this. You, you, well, they'll often say paint yourself into a corner, but they'll say you get yourself into this, into this musical situation. I'm like, how's he going to get out of this? And yet somehow you always do. Um, and of course, I would say with varying success, but but uh, but that's that's to me that's my favorite thing. So that element of risk, um, and that influences who I like listening to and and everything. Uh, uh, I, I I like to hear people taking chances, and I like to do it myself. Well, you so that band when you when you say it set off some some tributary events that's that's an interesting way to to characterize that for sure because that i think your tributary event is probably the the crowning achievement of anyone else's uh career i would think so you became the relationship between you and, and kurt elling how did that evolve um where did you guys how did that you know come about well, Kurt sat in one night, which in itself was a shock because this was a band that nobody sat in with, a lot of it because of what I was just saying. We weren't playing There Will Never Be Another You or All The Things You Are. We were up there playing this crazy, difficult material, and the best horn players in Chicago would stop by there to sort of quake at Ed's uh, prodigiousness because he was sort of jaw-dropping by himself. Um and so imagine our surprise one night when he just sort of announces on the microphone that a young friend is going to sit in with us who's a singer. Um, and it turned out that they had met in some other musical situations. So here comes this young guy, sings. Uh, uh, at that point, Kurt was obviously still, I mean, he had the voice, uh, was very raw compared to what he became later. Um, but certainly more than a healthy amount of um, uh, very impressive uh, singing happened. And, and to his credit, he came by uh, the Green Mill a lot of Mondays um, and actually didn't sit in the majority of the time. But he and a sort of circle of friends that he had developed at that point became very interested in what we were doing down there. Uh, and that's how our, our uh, working together evolved out of that. And the next thing you know, uh, he's got some private backing because it costs money to do stuff to get into the studio. And what we went into the studio and did was uh, what became Close Your Eyes, the first Blue Note release. And from there, we were just kind of off and running. And then you spent quite, were you, were you tapped as the musical director right out of the gate or was that something that happened over time? It's a little of both, to be honest. Um, the reason I say that is because the way Kirk got signed to Blue Note, it happened very quickly, quicker than we were expecting. And so... You know, Chicago's an interesting scene. Chicago's an amazing scene, but it tends to be very insulated due to Chicago's uh, perhaps unfortunate sort of flyover status. Um, there's some amazing musicians in Chicago that nobody knows about, uh, and that's kind of the way it's always been. I shouldn't say nobody, but you know what I mean in mm -hmm. terms of right. compared compared to the way musicians in the New York scene or even, the, you know, the, there's a whole West Coast thing, too, where people get to be 
a little bit better known because that's where the business is. That's where you get more exposure for just certain, we can say, industrial reasons. Um, so uh, I, I was not green at all in terms of actually being a working musician. I hadn't dealt with labels and touring and that sort of stuff yet. But I knew well enough when Kurt got signed to Blue Note that it was Kurt who'd gotten signed, not me. Um, and I had no idea what that meant for me. In fact, to be honest, I had some friends that were upset with me for not being more excited. And I had to explain to them, yeah, well, I don't know what this means for me. Blue Note may come along and say that they want to put Kurt with these guys that are already very, very well known. And honestly, uh, Brian, I think if it had been just a couple of years before, I think there's a very good likelihood that that's what would have happened. But this was uh, 1994, and it was right at a time when the labels were becoming let's just say freshly aware of the fact that for one thing when they produced these records with a bunch of different stars um that it was frequently sorry about that um that it was frequently uh not something that was profit earning at all they you know they had to really bump salaries up a lot to have this kind of super bands that they put together and it didn't lead to any particular accelerated gain for the labels and so mm -hmm. they were starting to be wary of that already and then there had been some other situations where they had become aware that when they were signing a new artist if that artist actually had a working band of lesser known people who still were world-class players uh, that that was something that they now felt like they could encourage that for just the practical uh, implications that it brought to the table. For for our non-musician friends, the analogy is you build through the draft, not through free agency. It, right? <laughs> exactly. I mean, that's, that's kind right. of the same thing. That's right. That's exactly right. <clears throat> and so uh, that also combined with the fact that the first few years that we were touring – a very healthy amount of the time, uh, well, that's a curious choice of uh, adjective, uh, a, a great deal of that time, we were picking up local bass players and drummers in the v various places that we went uh, to play. And, you know, if you're, pl if you're coming to New York to play and the drummer and bass player that you're picking up are... Uh, you know, Billy Hart and, and Essiet Essiet or something like that, you know, then that's great. Um, but in a lot of places uh, that are more out of the way, we, we certainly went through our share of, uh, you know, three, four, five hour rehearsals with a couple of guys who, frankly, since I'm not mentioning any names, I hope it's okay if I just say it this way, but weren't really very good right. uh, to then do a two hour show. And it took a few years of that for us to finally say to Kurt's management, you know, this just isn't working. We're going to all this trouble, expending all this energy to get out and play for people. And as hard as we're working, the people that are coming to the show still aren't really hearing the thing that we've got when we have our guys. Um, and so there was a certain point around, I'm going to say 1998, 1999, where 
there was a rededicated effort and certainly some sacrifices financially were made uh, to prioritize getting Kurt's main band out there on the road. Um, uh, much easier to do something like that then, as hard as it was. Right. Well, how uh, how big was that ensemble? Uh, initially, it's just a quartet. We're really just talking about a bass player and a drummer that are our guys from Chicago, as opposed to picking up local bass player and drummer. Uh, guest artist horn players started getting added a little bit later. Um, having a regular fifth member who is a guitar player didn't happen until much, much later. So we're not talking about a huge band, but uh, on the other hand, bass and drums are the cornerstone foundation of any great band, pretty much. Uh, so if, if you've got those two positions filled by super solid, great players that also know the material, because of course the other thing that was happening was that the more years that passed, the more um, Kurt's repertoire and that band that act however you want to say it uh, was becoming known not just for having a great singer at the helm but also for having really great material um uh some of it challenging to play uh and that brings into the picture the great advantage of having a bassist and drummer who know the charts and have played them a bunch of times because right. then you don't have to worry about uh, uh, the all the nerve-wracking and nail-biting aspects of that in front of an audience, not knowing whether um, this chart or that chart is gonna is gonna play out successfully just because of it's being difficult. Yeah, that's a different kind of adventure. That's not good. It's not like what we had talked about before, where. Um you know, you're off on a sight reading journey with, with a group and trying to, you know, push the limits when, when, yeah, if you, if, if people are, you know, kind of putting their hard earned money down to see, you know, whoever the artist is, you know, you want to make sure that you're delivering, you know, the experience that they expect or better. And when, you know, if you have a, within a quartet or a trio, I mean, every, the fewer pieces in the band, each one gets more important. So you can't have any weak, uh, any weak links because it really becomes uh, obvious. Uh, so, so you were together for a, a long time, right? Mm -hmm. 20, Twenty mm -hmm. years, really effectively twenty years. Eighteen years of touring, um, but I I'm, I'm, I met Kurt in '93, and we. Uh, dissolved our working relationship in 2013 so 20 years now here's here's kind of an inside baseball question for for people who are interested in sort of the business side of, of things did at any point was it was it always sort of a handshake agreement between the two of you to the extent you can say uh or was there was there a written agreement between you and the label or you and the you know um, i don't know if kurt had his a production company or how his his uh, uh, affairs are, are organized, but what was the, you know, kind of lift, lifting the hood for a minute? How did, how did the business end of it work? Well, the only written uh, thing we ever had was a co-publishing agreement, which got signed very early on because in the early records, we were writing original songs together. Mm-hmm. 
uh, and the normal business model for that, um, despite the variety of ways that that can work in terms of the actual creative work. But the normal business model is just a 50-50 split between the lyricist and the composer. Um, uh, so we are uh, very early on, probably 1996, that got put into place. Other than that, it really was, and this is the way, you know, this is the way it works, uh, especially in jazz music. But I know people that are that are in larger touring situations. Uh, I don't I, I've never really heard of anybody, you know, signing a contract. Uh, uh, you're so and so's pianist and music director and you have a five year contract to do that. Um, I, I've rarely heard. In fact, I honestly can say I've never heard of a specific instance of anything like that. It's a very, very mercenary business. Well, and that, and as as the investment, you know, if if it's if we take ourselves out of the jazz world for a minute, and in a, you know, a pop or an R and B artist where, you know, Live Nation or someone is bankrolling a tour for five million dollars or whatever it is, um, you start getting into assessing risk like you know are your key people this is just like running a company you know is the ceo under contract is the cfo under contract we want to make sure we have the, the management the, the management team for it's a, not a great analogy i concede but you know we want to make sure that the key people are in place and not going anywhere because you know the the touring company just advanced you know x number of dollars for us to go to go do this but Right, right. Well, there's a couple of things I could say. First of all, over the period of, of that 18 years that we were touring, the official billing that was being contracted by the booking agency would go back and forth between just being Kurt Elling and being Kurt Elling with the Lawrence Hobgood Trio. Early on, it wasn't the latter because, quite honestly, and I understood this, nobody nobody knew who Lawrence Hobgood was. And so why would you put that in the billing? It's not going to, it's not going to draw anybody because it's an unfamiliar name. And then at a certain point, uh, I think it was probably after I'd gotten my first independent Grammy nomination, um, which was for arranging, uh, that it did get switched. And then what happened was there was a little period of time in the early two thousands, I guess it would be, um, when, I was getting some more of my own uh, gig activity as a leader starting to happen. And it was pointed out uh, that there was, there was a specific situation where Kurt was doing a gig and I had booked that date. And of course, I was, we communicated about that stuff. So he and his management knew that on this particular date, I wasn't going to be available. But they then they got an attractive gig offer for him for that date, accepted it, just figuring, uh, you know, well, we'll figure something out. We'll get a different. Actually, I believe I remember that he got a guitar player for that gig. Anyway, somehow at a later date, there was some gig happening where uh, the the client came back or the promoter and said, and this I remember weirdly was wrong, but they said that they had heard that I wasn't going to be there, um, and this was viewed as being potentially 
problematic. So anyway, then the billing got changed back to being just Kurt Elling because uh, that way there was no no reason for him to sweat if if some one of these situations came up because there you know it wasn't contractually required that I be there uh, by nature of what it said on the contract. So those kind of things kind of went back and forth, um, and uh, and I, I will say that in later years um it would I, I this is subjective but it would be my it would be fair to say that that uh, there are a lot of business choices in the music business one of them is to sort of i don't know if whitewash is the right word but just make make everything about the one central leader so that in terms of the advertising and the way that something is being presented to the public, mm -hmm. uh, the people who are the side men, if you want to use that term, are, aren't even listed. doesn't really matter who's playing in the band. Um, that's one choice, and that's kind of the choice that, the, that Kurt and his organization made. And I'm, I'm not going to lie, that was something that I didn't like because I – had made what I now uh, completely view, uh, openly view as the the tactical error of putting all my eggs in one basket. Um, and I shouldn't have done that to the extent that I did it. And a lot of the reason I did it was because it was just a very comfortable situation. Also worth pointing out that we were touring sometimes, you know, almost 200 nights a year. Wow. So, so when is it that you're supposed to do this other stuff if you're on the right. road that much? Um, if you are going to be pursuing your own leadership activities, but I got, I got a little too comfortable and, uh, uh, but on the other hand, I had invested all this time and energy, uh, and was very faithful to that situation. And so, you know, the more you play places where you look in the program and it doesn't mention anybody who's in the band, including a founding member of the band who happened to also write 95% of the material that's being played. That's not the greatest feeling, you know? Well, and all, and all the while, you know, the one thing that I, um, you know, tell my clients that are in the creative industries is that everything you do leads to the next thing, whether you realize it or not, whether you're intentionally, you know, trying to lay the groundwork for some future project or whether you aren't even thinking that way, you know, if you keep working hard and, and doing good work, you're setting yourself up for the next thing. Now, in, in so in your case, you went out under your own name as, as a band leader, and that was what, tw uh, 2013 or 20. Yeah, really effectively 20, 2014 was okay. when it started. And from, and from there, you know, just from the contacts that you you have made up until that point, you had, you know, a pretty deep, you know, contact list of bass players and, and other, you know, drummers and other musicians that you, you know, had wanted to work with in a different context, I would think. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Absolutely. The musician contacts are one thing. The business contacts are another. Um, it's it's not a secret that the live music, uh, especially more artistic music industry, is uh, is hard put these days. Um, and so, uh, by way of analogy, I 
sort of been telling this uh, old joke I remember about uh, a couple of women that go on vacation to Mexico. One's been many times, but her friend hasn't been before. And they're in the market and they see a silver bracelet they both would like to buy, but it's too expensive. At least that's what the woman who has not been there before thinks. But her friend says, oh, no, no, wait a minute, watch this. And so she gets into a, a, a you know, a, a dickering over the price conversation with the merchant. Eventually, they get the price down to a quarter of what he'd been asking for, and she buys the bracelet. So her friend says, oh, well, now, if that's the price, I'll have one, too. And the guy looks at her and says, oh, no, senora, for you, we start all over again. Um, so that's kind of what I'm and, and so many other people are dealing with these days is that you may have been a, a well-known, lauded you know, a high visibility side person with some uh, with some act. But now if you're trying to get things going as a leader, uh, despite how forthcoming and great to see you and sort of glad handy people are at, at you know, music conventions and mm -hmm. things like that, when it comes to actually the nitty gritty of trying to get them to give you a gig that's got any sort of a decent fee attached to it, it's you, you might as well be just completely unknown. Uh, well, maybe that's a little extreme, but it's, it's really just starting completely all over. Well, and that and that's a really an eye-opening uh, take on on things. Considering, you know, at this point, how many Grammy nom how many recordings that were Grammy nominated had you appeared on prior to being your own band leader? Six, uh, uh, ten, ten, ten with a with a win in tw with a Grammy award in twenty ten. Mm -hmm. And uh, boy, that gives little little hope for the rest of us. Then, well, it's really tough. <laughs> Yeah, it is. Uh, it's it is. It's really, really tough. Um, on the other hand, to get to to go back to giving you some hope, and this is what keeps me going. I know from having been part of this experience of seeing something built from the ground up, and in a way, the fact that we didn't start in a major market—not to belittle Chicago, but but from the business point of view, Chicago is not a major market because the labels aren't there, the management isn't there, the booking agents aren't there. Uh, being in a place like New York or L.A. or even Boston, where a lot of the booking agents have their offices, can be a huge advantage. Starting this thing, seeing how it developed and seeing eventually what made it successful as a touring entity it really all comes down to what are you putting on the stage and how many people are going to like listening to that. And what we have today is a climate where I believe, and here's where I'm going to get a little controversial, I suppose, except I'll save myself by not mentioning any specific names. But there's a lot of, uh, there's a lot of very impressed, technically impressive, sort of mathematical not as lyrical or emotional music out there that's gotten a lot of uh, uh, sort of cognoscenti based critical acclaim. And what it results in, I believe, is a lot of people that are sort of emperors clothed into going to a concert because they, they've been told that this is really amazing and great. And 
but I can't tell you how many people I talk to that come away from something saying, well, yeah, I suppose it was really good. But for instance, I couldn't remember a single melody. I don't have anything that I'm coming away from that whistling or singing to myself in my head, you know. Um, and what that tells me is that is that there is music that's being listened to that the people aren't really enjoying themselves that much. Um, and so even if they are, the point is that the jazz business these days is kind of like musical chairs, that every time the music stops, there's one less chair to sit in, you know. Um, and so, yes, it's, it's, it's a difficult, challenging time, but the point is to craft a product that you put it in front of people and they just go, wow, amazing, amazing, uh, a playing first and foremost, but amazing game plan, amazing, uh, amazing writing, amazing arrangements, amazing narrative arc, uh, and I still remain convinced that if you put that out there uh, and people hear it, then they're going to want to hear more of it. And that's what should, in theory, lead to a full touring schedule. Well, I think, uh, boys and girls at home, that's that's as good a roadmap as you're ever going to hear about um, how to, you know, how, how to make sure that you keep working, um, you know, have be technically excellent and that by itself is never enough you have to present it in a way that grabs people and and you know definitely on a gut or emotional level you know people need to leave the performance um you know humming if if, if not humming the tunes at least remembering you know remembering some of the theme you know thematic things that they you know they may have heard so um, Lawrence, I, you know, we're all very, very excited, uh, for your performance in Allentown and, uh, you know, we cannot, uh, can't wait for next month. We're, we're really looking forward to seeing you. Well, we're looking forward to coming. Uh, Jared and Matthew are just really, they're both just amazing. Um, and they're, they, they lift me up whenever I hear them playing and playing with them is, is, is great. So uh, I can't wait to be there. Well, it'll it'll be here before we know it. So um, if you like what you heard, we had a couple of excerpts uh, from your most recent recording, one on the intro to the podcast and one that we're about to get into called Triptych. Mm-hmm. And uh, you you can we will link to that on the podcast page. So if you go to creativeconfidential.net and click on episodes, you'll see Lawrence's name and you click through to his his episodes page. And uh, we'll have links so that you can uh, you can check out more of Lawrence's work, and uh, we will we will be talking to you soon. Great, thank you. Thanks very much. All right, Brian, take care. Thanks for listening to Creative Confidential with Brian Tuck. To have Brian consult for your arts organization or public speaking engagements, or if you have legal matters you want to discuss, contact him at tucklaw.com. That's T-U-K-Law.com. For future episodes, please subscribe to Creative Confidential on iTunes or visit us at creativeconfidential.net. This has been a Steve Mittman social media creation. Creation. Steve Mittman, socialmedia.com.